Good evening, family. Warm welcome to our visitors. God bless you. Thank you for being here. We're so glad that you're here. You're a blessing for us. We hope to be a blessing for you as well. Um, Brother Scott, I've never heard that hymn before. <laughs> so I'm glad to hear it tonight. It was a blessing. I have a short-lived tradition that I'd like to continue tonight of doing the Sunday night sermons as an interactive sermon. Whereas it's sort of a mini class, but it's not a class, where I ask you three questions, and I want to hear answers from three people, what you think, and uh, from three different people for each question. So with that in mind, please don't be shy, because I'm going to ask you some questions, and it applies more to an intimate setting like this tonight. Tonight we're going to look at three everyday phrases. Okay? Three everyday phrases and see if they've got a biblical connection. If they've got actually a Bible-based meaning for them. The three phrases are, you've never been in my shoes. The second one, I got your back. And the third one, is that person is a chip off the old block. I know you haven't heard that one for a long time, but in my day and age, it was a more popular saying. So it's three phrases. You've never been in my shoes. I got your back. And that person's a chip off the old block. So my first question is, what do you think of if someone says to you, you've never been in my shoes? And let me word it the way it's worded more um, colloquially today. The, the modern version is, you don't know me. Have you ever heard someone say, you don't know me? Now, what does that mean? When, you know, when I hear someone say that, I, I want to say, oh, hi, I'm Carl Converso. I'd like to meet you. Pleased to meet you. But that's not what they're asking for. They're not asking for introductions, are they? So someone, please, don't be shy. Let me, what do you think of when they say, when someone says to you, you don't know me. What's it in context of? What does it usually mean? A good one. Brother Sonny said, you don't face the troubles I, I face. Okay. So the, there's an idea there of judgment. Anyone else? You don't know my background. Okay. Okay? All, all that, all my experiences from, from cradle to now to present. Okay? Three great answers, by the way. And this is a nice one tonight because there's no wrong answers. Okay? <laughs> this is a good one. Those are three great answers. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. If you're in James, flip back to Hebrews. Chapter 2 of Hebrews. And in Chapter 2 of Hebrews, the writer is talking about Jesus as a high priest. He says in verse 10 of Hebrews, In bringing many sons to glory, that is, children of God, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation, and that is, of course, the author of our salvation is Jesus Christ. The author of their salvation, perfect through suffering 
suffering. Go down to verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that Jesus, in essence, has flesh, had flesh and blood as he walked the earth. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. There's the concept. In service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who were being tempted. He has had our experiences. He has been there, and he has done that, so that he could be the high priest that represents us. Turn with me to the, to the Gospel of Matthew, very first book in the New Testament. And this is a short passage in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, and he's talking about worrying. He says in chapter 10, verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. In other words, it's not beneath the father to notice them, to be aware of them. It is not beneath. Even though not one of them isn't worth a penny, two of them is worth a penny. Okay, So they're less than a penny. But they're not beneath the father's attention. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. The hairs of our head are numbered. Now, I'm going, I'm balding as I get older. My hair was a lot fuller and, and closer to the front. But I know I've got a lot of hairs left, thank God. And all of us have tens of thousands. And I don't know the scientific number for that. I've heard anywhere from 120 to 180,000, something like that. It's a lot of hairs. And God says, the good Lord says, the very hairs on your head are numbered. That's knowing you. Because I don't know the number of hairs on my head. So God knows me better than I know me. He knows us. In fact, let's go into our last verse in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, the very last book of the New Testament. In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, Jesus addresses the seven churches. And that's a very symbolic number, but that's for another evening. But I want you to look at a pattern here in Revelation, starting in chapter 2. We're just going to read two verses uh, at a time. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Revelation, Jesus says, To the angel of, of the church in Ephesus write, go down to verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. What's he saying? To the church, I know. 
I know. Go down to verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. Again, go down to verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, Pergamum excuse me, write in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. I know. After Jesus identifies himself, and all seven of them, I won't read all seven, but the pattern is there. He says to the church, he identifies who he is. And then he says, I know. I know. Because he does know. He knows our sorrows and our tears, our private moments. He knows our joy. He gives us our joy. He knows. No one can say to God, you don't know me. Because God knows everybody. Okay, that moves us on to the second question. The second phrase, I should say. I got your back. There's another way to phrase that, and that is, I got you covered. Now, if I say, you know, with the little cute ones, you might say, I got your nose. And they go, I remember, uh, you know, the, the children would go, oh, I want my nose back. Nobody's got my back, literally. Nobody's got your back, literally. So what does it mean when we say, I got your back? I got you covered. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? I'll support you. I'll support you. I like that. Yes, Mike. Oh, I really like that. That makes me think of a surgery or an accident, a really troublesome time. I'll hold your hand. Any other thoughts? You're not alone, okay? I love that. I love those three answers. It's a really good night for answers. Yes? You know, the first thing I thought of was that anything's possible with God. Amen. And just, no matter what situation you're in, he has a Excellent. Excellent point. I'll be a friend. That's a hint. I'll be a friend to Jesus because he's a friend to us. I love that. Yes, he'll be a friend to us. Absolutely. Let's turn to the book of James. We were in Hebrews, one, one book over to James. And I want to read what it means to have your back. That is, to have you covered. And in James, in chapter 5, starting verse 19, verses 19 and 20, James writes, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death. Here's the point. And cover over a multitude of sins. Cover over a multitude of sins. In other words, a multitude of sins. A multitude, not a little t 
teensy-weensy number, a multitude, a great big pile of ugly mess and wrongs. You know, like you see on the news at night, a great big pile of ugly mess and wrongs will cover over a multitude of sins. That's having somebody's back. That's having somebody covered. And God does that with us. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Turn over one book to the left. And I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5. And the writer here in Hebrews in chapter 9 is talking about the Ark of the Covenant. He's comparing the Jewish worship with the earthly settings and their spiritual meanings in the New Testament under Christ. But in chapter 9 and verse 5, he says, Above the ark were the cherubim, that is angels, of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. In fact, let me read from verse 4. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, that is the bread from heaven, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant that Moses held. The Ten Commandments. Aaron's and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. Traditionally, the mercy seat that somehow miraculously Brother Scott found a hymn that talked about that mercy seat because they're few and far between. <laughs> it's traditionally called the mercy seat, but it's the atonement cover. I'm reading this verse because this is the only time in the New Testament where the phrase atonement cover is found in the New Testament. Atonement and covering, where they go together. This is it, the one and only. It's referring to Exodus. So if you would please turn with me to Exodus in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And it's talking in chapter 25 of Exodus. It's talking about the Ark of the Covenant, chapter 25, in verse 17. And here God tells Moses, Exodus 25, verse 17, make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, cubit being about a foot and a half, and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherubim on one end and the second cherubim on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. I'm glad I didn't have to follow these instructions. It would be really difficult for me <laughs> as you read through the Old Testament and its instructions. However, God is very clear and precise for a reason. Verse 21. Place the cover on top of the ark and put it in the ark. Put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelite. The atonement cover went over the ark. It covered the ark. 
it atoned for us. When you think of the meaning of the word atone, it, it's the idea of reconciling, making, making wrongs right. In the old, the old usage of the term, it's the idea of, of being in unity. God atones for us. He covers us. He has our back. He covers over my multitude of sins. He has our back. And that's why we t what I take from the atonement cover. Third and last question of the evening. A chip off the old block. If I say to you someone is a chip off the old block, Am I saying they're a little piece of stone, thin, flat? What does that mean? And that's not really a term. I, I was reminded of the, the phrase this morning, actually, when um, Patrick announced that Reagan was, had morning sickness. And a blessed event it is. But it made me think of a chip off the old block. So I hope this child is like the other two, and this child is a chip off the old block. What does that mean? You're like your parents. You're like your parents, OK. What does it literally mean to be a chip off the old block? What's the setting of that? That has a literal meaning. Smaller piece of something larger. I like that. Anybody else? I like that. It's a construction term. Anyone? When you're working in a quarry with lots of rocks and you're chipping away at the block and you're using an axe or a hammer, and you chip the stone, there's a chip there. It's chipped off the block because you're trying to form something with the block. The chip is made out of the same thing that the big block is. It's the same stuff, it's just smaller. We are chips off the block. Do you know what the block is? Do you know what the rock is? Jesus Christ. Turn with me, please, to 1 Peter. And we'll wrap this up shortly. 1 Peter, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, and James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. In 1 Peter, chapter 2, Peter writes in verse 4, As you come to him, the living stone, that is Jesus, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also like living stones. So see, it's not just Jesus is the living stone. Yes, he is the living stone. We're living stones. Are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When you think of the old church buildings, and some of them, they're, they're made out of stone, how beautiful they are. You know how hard that would be to reproduce today <laughs> with bricks? A stonemason who chips at blocks to make them fit. That's what this is about. We are the house of God. We are living stones. And Jesus is the stonemason. And he's building us up to be this beautiful monument for him where he lives. All right, last, next to the last verse of the evening. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah, because I love this verse. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. 
And if you look at Isaiah chapter 51, Isaiah, who was called the weeping prophet, says, in 50, chapter 51 and verse 1, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. So that's everybody who loves God and wants to be with God, wants to know what God has to say. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. That is, cut from, chipped away at. We are chips off the old block. And this is where it comes from. We are chips off the old block. And the big block is Jesus. He is the rock upon which we stand. So what we see here in these three common everyday phrases, you don't know me, and I got your back, and a chip off the old block, is that the good Lord does know us. And he has our back. He covers us. He covers our weakness and our wrongs. And that he makes us chips off the old block. He makes us to be of the substance of his godliness. He makes us godly, where we're not godly in ourselves. I'm not godly in myself. But if I can be good, he makes me good. He makes us like him. And so we thank God for that. And to anyone who's not a Christian, I want to tell you that God knows you, and he can cover you, and he can make you a chip off the old block. Our last verse this evening is Acts chapter 2. Verse 36, and this is where Paul is giving, excuse me, Peter is giving the first gospel message, as it's called. And he says, therefore, in verse 36 of Acts 2, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucify, both Lord and Christ. Let everybody be sure Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the rock. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent, that is, to change your mind, to turn, to do a, a mental U-turn. And be baptized, to be dipped, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And in verse 41, we read that those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Well, there won't be 3,000 here. But if there is anyone in the audience who has not claimed Jesus as the Lord and Savior, one is just as important as 3,000. And if you're not a Christian, we invite you to come forward now while we stand and sing.